Comic Club, your friendly neighborhood comic book podcast. This is the show where we read a graphic novel every month and break it down. But this is our special in-between episodes called Beyond the Panels, where we watch a movie or television show inspired by the comics we read and love. This month, we have The Suicide Squad, written and directed by James Gunn. I am joined, as always, by Adam leader of Task Force X's elusive third team, Cook. Glad to be here. You know, I know most people didn't think we were going to make it, but we got here. Uh, How you doing, Blaine? What did you, I mean, we finally get to see the Suicide Squad. How you feeling about it? I gotta say, so I was reading some reviews and... I'm in the minority here because there was just not a lot that was working for me in this film. I don't want to be the guy on the pod, you know, just crapping all over it. But I just was not feeling this movie. I, I That's sort of my first take. And I want to sort of get that out there. I can tell you why, but uh, we're going to find some other things to chat about too. But what, what's sort of your first opinion of it? I think we're on opposite ends of the, the spectrum here because I had a great time with it. I thought it was pretty fun. Finally, we disagree. <laughs> that has been like, people are like, y'all are always on the same page. I'm like, me and Adam have kind of similar tastes, just kind of how it goes. Kind of, you know. um, well, why don't we talk about this first? Tell me about your viewing experience. How did you see this movie? Um, I watched this with our dear friends, Chris and Celia, at their house that they are letting me stay in. And um, it was nice. We just, like, you know, got together downstairs on the couch, threw it on last night after it came out on HBO, and uh, it was good. I was, you know, I was on the fence. I thought I might try to see it in theaters, but kind of a mixture of last minute lack of planning and the sort of uptick in uh corona outbreaks has made me a little wary of getting back in there so i just i just watched it at home how'd you watch it i actually made it to the theaters and and i I was like yeah i'm gonna watch it on hbo max and then you mentioned oh i think i'm gonna go try to see this one in theaters and i got jealous bro fomo over here and i was like shit i want to go see in theaters so um I kind of looked at movie. It was so last minute, like yesterday at like lunch. I was like, let me just check out some movie times. I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna do it. I used to go see movies at that that sort of midnight premiere Thursday night all the time. So I called up a buddy. We got a couple beers and we made it to the 9:30 showing. And I wanted to talk about something, Adam. Buyer's remorse in cinema. And I know you said you dug this movie, but I, I think this is kind of an interesting topic because I am the type of guy who loves seeing new releases. I have to see it opening weekend. And one of the reasons, because I like talking about it. I want to talk about it with you. I want to talk about it with my friends. In fact, we started a podcast to do that very thing, is talk about the media we love. But in the past, whenever the only way to see a new release was theaters. Literally, the only way you could make it happen was to go see it in theaters. Now, it is a premium offering. You know, I I could see it at home on my couch on HBO, which I'm already subscribed to and pay nothing additionally that I'm not already paying. Or I could do the premium tier and I elected to do the premium tier. Well, what happens to your mind and your, you know, mental and the way you feel about it whenever maybe you didn't like it as much? In the past, I was just like, 
eh, movie was okay, but at least I got to see it. Now I'm like, well, shit, I spent like fucking $40. I got a couple beers. I got some popcorn. I spent a lot of money on this thing. I'm like, I should have just stayed at home and saved that money. Do you, like, like what, what do you think about that in terms of just like that like theater experience? Because it, it, it really kind of shifted my mindset. No, I, I had this distinct feeling at the end of, I liked that, but I'm kind of glad I didn't see it in the theaters because I don't think it really would have changed the experience that much for me. Maybe uh-huh. a little bit. I, I was excited to, if I was going to go see it, I was going to try and go see it at the Alamo Draft House, you know, do it up. I haven't been right. back to the Draft House in over a year. And um, so that would have been fun. I would have been, I, that might have honestly got me in the mood a little bit more because they do all these awesome before the movie, you know, clips and fun stuff to really just get you amped up for whatever you're seeing. Um, but I did kind of have that feeling and maybe that honestly, that might have colored my experience a little bit of just thinking like, oh, well, I'm glad that I'm just kind of like hanging out with a couple of my good friends and I didn't, you know, spend 40 bucks yeah. on this. But it, it made me sad at the same time because one, I love the experience, but now I'm having to evaluate films based on money and transactions. And I usually don't like doing that because I, I find this happens a lot whenever I am playing video games or um, I remember one time like you buy, you buy a pay-per-view fight or you know you go see a movie and people ask you, well, was it worth it? Was it worth the money? Was was the entertainment you received worth what you paid for it? And I hate that conversation because I don't want to talk about was the entertainment I found worth the money I paid for it. I want to talk about just straight up whether it's good or not. But at the end of the day, whenever you're spending $40, then on video games now are like $70. And it it, it has to factor in. And, and it's just like kind of one of those things where I don't want this to be a conversation of like, should you pay $20 to go see this movie in theaters? I just want it to be, do you, is this movie good or not? I mean, it's totally fair. And I think it has to be part of the conversation now when it's such a big part of the experience is, you know, shelling out the money for it because the, it's just kind of been our, the hands have been forced, you know, the audience has to shell it out if they want to do that. And I think that, so a couple of years ago, um, do you remember MoviePass? Were you involved in that yeah. at all? Oh yeah, I had MoviePass. Pass. I, I I had it for a couple of months, and I and I used it like once or twice, and then I canceled. But I, it was a great deal. I just never really took advantage. Yeah. Of it. So MoviePass, for anyone who doesn't know, was this subscription service where basically you would pay a monthly fee, and you at first you would get unlimited movies. You could go to any movie theater, and you could use your card that you had paid the monthly fee for to see see movies. Um, and it was like a terrible business plan and they were losing money like immediately and people yes. were just like, how is this going to work? And they never figured it out. So it didn't last long. I was definitely a card carrying member and I used it a few times. I used it like several times a month and I loved it. And what it did prove, honestly, is they had a genuine increase in ticket sales over that time. And it proved that people want to go to the movies, yes. but the price point is what's holding them back. I love that take because it's so true. And then whenever, you know, I'm looking at tickets for AMC and the Dolby is like nearing $20. Regular tickets are like $14. And it just gets up there once you get snacks and stuff like that. It, it makes a big difference. And once you factor in the family situation, oh, oh, Fiona wants to go see the new Disney movie. Hell no. We're going to rent it at home for 30 bucks yeah. and, and not spend all that money. Um, I, I have this... I, 
I, I love that. And I wanted to use another analogy here because I mentioned video games a couple times because this comes up in video games a ton. And the reason is because there is also about the length. And this is something that doesn't get talked about in film because most everything is between an hour and a half to two and a half hours. So you don't really feel the am I getting it worth the money? In fact, a lot of times people are like, it was too long. But in video games, you spend 60 or $70 on a game. And if the game is only 10 hours to complete, people are like, well, what the hell? Like I, I'm paying 60, $70 for 10 hours, or I could buy this other game, The Witcher or Assassin's Creed. And those games take like 70 hours to 100 hours. But to me, there's so much fluff. The developers just put in all this extra fluff and extra content that, you know, like our editors and directors cut out of the movies because they want to make the product perfect and the best and not just add everything in there, not just make a five-hour movie because we want to give people value for their money. We want to make the best product possible. And and that is another conversation about like time versus money that gets talked about a lot in video games. And and I wonder if that'll ever enter the sort of movie discourse as well. Yeah, very interesting. I feel like there's a lot of connections there and similarities. And maybe that's something that video games and like video games will have to reckon with eventually. The movie theaters are definitely reckoning with that now. And especially with the rise of streaming, it's kind of just, you know, you think the writing's on the wall. And I just feel like we're definitely headed towards fewer and fewer movies actually coming into theaters and kind of only getting these Suicide Squad big event movies and then a few Oscar movies to get the nomination just to qualify. But honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if in future years the Academy does away with that requirement of making them have a theatrical run. Oh, totally. I mean, that's definitely going to be the case. It's so silly that Netflix feels like they have to like open their films and and you can't even see them. They open like one theater in New York just to like meet the requirements. And it's like, that's so dumb. It's just a, you know, one of these stupid rules that they have to check off. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's keep talking about the movie or let's start talking about the movie. Um, Um, so, so tell me, Adam, you know, I think James Gunn is the director. Just a little bit of backstory here. He did Guardians 1 and 2, and then there were some tweets resurfaced, resurfaced from his past, and, uh, Marvel fired him. And they, they fired him for some of these, you know, distasteful, stupid, you know, jokes that he was making. He apologized. He came forward about it. But the competition, DC, Snatched him up and they said, yo, you could do anything, dude. They talked about him doing a Superman. I, w- I didn't even know this. And he was like, ah, it's a little too big for me. But I, what I always wanted to do is the Suicide Squad. And here he is. I think we kind of have to sort of compare this to Guardians in a way that that line is super close. Because one, he made both movies, but it's kind of that same sort of deferential co- comedic take. And then I would say the other uh, analog here is Deadpool. Because one, because of the R rating and the violence. But same thing, just that that kind of comedic superhero um, look at it. Tell me, what do you think of Suicide Squad? What did you enjoy about it? Let's talk about it a little bit. Well, yeah, I mean, you have to draw obvious comparisons to Guardians. Beyond the the fact that it's James Gunn doing both of them, they're so similar. It's like a ragtag band of misunderstood misfits that all have to come together to achieve a greater good, like despite themselves in their own sort of selfish ways and um, very irreverent to the genre, kind of like making fun of 
these big moments that are always played for such such drama and seriousness in a in a traditional Marvel movie. Instead, in Guardians, it it ends with a dance off competition. Like it That's doesn't right. get exactly. more ridiculous and making fun of yourself than that. And I think he kind of brought that same energy to Suicide Squad. And I think one of the things that I was digging is that's kind of what I was wanting out of the first Suicide Squad. Now, I, mm-hmm. I've never revisited that first one since I watched it in same. theaters because I remember just not necessarily hating it. It was just I just thought it was terrible. And I, I just yeah. didn't even really understand what was happening in some moments as far as yes. the plotting. And um, it just seemed just like a, a big miss. Um, and this one, I was like, this is what you have to do with Suicide Squad. It needs to be funny and crass a little bit, like, you know, kind of juvenile in some ways, because this is so ridiculous. The violence has got to be over the top. The last Suicide Squad, I think, was brought down because it had a PG-13 rating. You're really hampered into what you can do. This, you obviously, like, James Gunn just gets to do his thing. He just got, you you could tell... They kind of gave him free reign and just said, "Oh yeah, just do what you think. We trust you." And it takes a lot to get to that place in your career, especially working on these kinds of projects with this kind of money involved. And it takes a lot for sort of the studio to have so many kind of bombs and misfires to be like, "God, we need we need somebody who has a vision to help here. Let's just let him choose because what we're kind of." putting on people and telling David Ayer that, yo, you got to make this PG-13. It's not, our our ideas aren't working. Let's get somebody else's ideas. And it was a great, like, it's kind of the perfect opportunity for James Gunn at that point because the expectations are so low on Suicide Squad. Like, if he had just made a decent movie, people are going to be saying it's a huge success compared to the first one. And, you know, I think that his sensibilities as a, a comedic, director and i was looking up a little bit of his history and filmography he had a pretty long run as a writer before he even started directing um writing some weird stuff like the first two scooby-doo movies and just some random things here and there but it was always rooted in comedy and i think that that is what the suicide squad really needed david ayer i love his work in fury and some of the other stuff he's done but i've never thought of him as like particularly comedically gifted and I don't even remember anything funny in the Suicide Squad. I mean, I, I mean, first Suicide Squad. I watched it in theaters, and my only kind of takeaway of that film—I can't even remember the story—is just how bad the end was with this CGI monster. And it was kind of—I always pointed my finger at DC films of that era that are like they always feel like there's going to be an end of the world event with this CGI monster that's not like funny or coolly rendered like star of the conquer but is like trying to be this grotesque big like it like i don't even know how to describe scary. it they, yeah they did it again in wonder woman the first wonder woman it's like they make just these cgi beasts that look horrible and and it just turns into the cgi battle that's uh, incomprehensible so well then so how did you feel about this final act where it is a giant kaiju the kaiju is a total different thing. I mean, uh, the kaiju movies is already a thing that I love, and that's different than a sort of CGI monster fight a la Superman fighting Doomsday, you know, where it's just you're just seeing these almost Dragon Ball Z figures just like hitting each other and flying around. And it's just CGI nonsense. This is still very grounded while 
you know, a big starfish is walking around, yeah. which is very comedic. Um, so I, I, I think that worked and I love kaiju stuff. And that line of like, we got a freaking kaiju on our hands here. <laughs> like that was great. That, that was one of the biggest laugh out loud moments for me. Um, another thing about Suicide Squad that I wanted to point out that I liked, but I think ultimately didn't work as well for me is I think some of the marketing on this film was, it was don't get too attached to these heroes. And that's what makes Suicide Squad work is that he's bringing in all these C, D, E tier heroes and villains that you know are going to die and he's going to kill them off. But to me, the problem was that he killed off around five of them in the first you know, five minutes of the film. And then there was, I believe, and, and everybody, by the way, this is going to be a spoiler <laughs> discussion if we haven't said it already. Um, two or three more deaths at the end, which is what you expect. I mean, I mean and, and that's kind of what I mean is like, what makes Suicide Squad great is that the stakes actually mean something. Because if you watch an Avengers movie, nobody's going to die. You know, I mean, they do. You know, uh, I mean, it it's kind of happens with Joss Whedon, but you know, with most superhero movies, they're going to play it safe. The main characters are probably not going to die unless it's some huge, huge, big emotional payoff that most people kind of sort of see coming or you kind of expect in some way. This is an opportunity to introduce a bunch of characters that one DC is cool with James Gunn killing, just slaughter them, just make the deaths just happen. And we didn't get any of those. I mean, I mean, again, the opening montage was just, you know, all, you know, a whole team of the Suicide Squad's dying. So, so like, bam, you, you made it happen right there. And in the end, there were a couple of those moments that I thought worked well, but that's what other movies do. You know, there's always going to be a death in the last act or two, you know, and I thought that wasn't teased out enough. I thought the team was going to be slowly killed off throughout the course of this movie. And that's just an expectation thing on my end. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's what they were definitely trying to do at the beginning is just really um, play with your expectations and totally catch you off guard. And I was caught off guard. I was like, oh, shit, they all died. Just a complete redirect. I liked it as kind of like a sort of a throw, not throwaway, but just an opening sequence that doesn't have as much bearing on the film as you think it does at the beginning of the sequence. It actually did have a huge payoff because, you know, that gets that gets Harley Quinn into the show that gets uh, Rick Flag into the show yeah. and like positions them in strategic ways that make sense. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's like, you know, that's fair. Uh, I I personally enjoyed that. I I would have I could have used more deaths. Honestly, I would Suicide yeah, Squad. Yeah. I would have liked it if like one person survived at the end. Uh, totally agree, and and I think one another one of the deaths that that happened in it that I thought worked really well. And this could have happened to the suicide squad as well is whenever they, they kill all the resistance fighters. Yeah. I love And like there, this whole action sequence and it's a pretty badass action sequence. And, um, they make it Rick flag is, you know, having tea with the leader of the resistance fighters. Like, why did my, uh, leaders notify me that y'all were here? And they're like, <laughs> whoopsie. They just go through this jungle sequence and kill people. So many people in the most badass way possible. <laughs> all for the wrong reason they're showing off they're yeah showing off they're their showing abilities. off it's so funny i really liked that too that was a really funny like that really caught me off guard too and i thought that's like a really good that's you know playing with the genre expectations that i think that james gunn is really good for like that's why you get him for something like this um but 
Yeah, I don't know. So what 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 wasn't working for you besides that? Well, a couple things. And I'll say one, the look of this movie just to me, it just looked ugly. And it kind of started with the beginning um, with Michael Rooker's just horrible hair, a horrible CGI um, bird that he kills. And then Weasel looked bad. And, and so those are just kind of some aesthetic things. But from like a cinematographer's point of view, it just had no beauty to it. There was nothing sort of interesting visually that was really catching my eye. I thought a lot of the costumes, and I know they're meant to look cheesy, even Peacekeeper, but it almost looked like just bad, like in a way that um, I'll kind of get to in a sec. I was going to talk about this. Here's an example of this is... I was going to go into Easter eggs and, and three of the Easter eggs in here that I have are these characters that are in the prison. And, and there's three kind of references to other DC deep cuts. You have crazy quilt. If you remember her, she's kind of got this painted face with all these different patterns on it. You have Sean Gunn, uh, James Gunn's brother playing calendar man. He's got it. Uh, the, the months written across his bald forehead and then double down who I didn't even know is this like card player who gets, you know, uh, infected by some like demon card demon or something like that. And whenever I was looking up the pictures of these things, it looks just like the worst, like they just drew Sharpie across, you know, Sean Gunn's head. Like they, it is just the worst costuming and that face paints, like those are the Easter eggs. It's just like crappy, like, like uh, makeup work on these guys. And, I know that's a small example, Adam, but visually I thought it was uninteresting. The comedy was so hit or miss. And one thing I wanted to bring up, Harley Quinn, I love Margot Robbie. I've never been the biggest Harley Quinn fan. I've come around to her a lot because Fiona loves Harley Quinn and we're watching um we're watching like these DC superhero girls like little cartoons and I love her. And then I've seen that Harley Quinn show on DC Universe. It's really good. But Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn has never worked for me. I do not think she's funny. And I think she's actually just like like bad. She looks great, but I, I just don't think anything she's doing is working ever. See, this is a matter of comedy being subjective because I'm, like I said, on the opposite end of the spectrum. I love her go. take on Harley Quinn, especially in this one. I didn't really like it that much in Suicide Squad. It was kind of forgettable. But I thought that she was really shining in this one. And she plays it with this kind of earnestness that I was not expecting. Um, she just gave it, gave it a little more humanity than I was expecting from Harley Quinn. And I was, I was just thinking, out of all the people in this movie, she's the star. Like, she is the star. And she's the one that really gets, I think she gets the biggest moment at the end for a reason. So, yeah, I mean, I think we're just, we're on opposite sides here. It, it happens, it happens. And then, I mean, just to kind of talk to my last thing, and then I, you know, I, again, we talked about what what are we going to do whenever we just don't like something? We don't want to talk so bad about it. But what, what James Gunn does so well in Guardians is he introduces a bunch of characters that you barely know. And by the end of the movie, you freaking love. You would kill for Groot. You would kill for Rocket Raccoon. Drax is awesome. And a lot of that goes with casting. A lot of that happens with the way these characters develop. And I just, with the exception of a couple, and I want to get into some of our favorite characters here, I just was not, like, I could care less about Bloodsport. I love Idris Elba, but he wouldn't do anything for me. John Cena was among the funnier people in this movie for me. Um, but 
I just, he, they kept giving all these people these goofy like backstories and make you care, especially like Ratcatcher. But I thought they just, the performances and the characters, like, I don't care if I ever see any of these characters again. I've always hated Rick Flag too. Rick Flag sucks. And like, I, I just, none of the characters were really hitting it for me. I feel like you might have had some uh, predetermined opinions going into this, it sounds like, but. Um, it's totally understandable. It definitely got a little schlocky. That was one of the things that I was not vibing with a lot, especially early on when they have this scene between, you know, King Shark and the rat catcher. And she's like, oh, we can be friends. And just like with a weird Eastern European accent, you know, very, very heavy handed. Like, okay, they're going to make a human connection. And mm-hmm. see, that's... They're going to be a family. They're going to be a f- team. You know, they're more than a team. They're a family. They're friends. And that's kind of like where it really felt too similar to Guardians for me. And maybe this is a big thing that like later on down the road will bug me more. But it, it was really, yeah, that kind of emotion. I just, I, I know why he's doing it. And I think a lot of people, a lot of fans probably want that kind of sentimental moment, kind of emotional beat I could do without it and just make like a suicide squad. That's really like all these people are basically terrible and you know, they make them hate each other. I I, I like the rivalry between peacemaker and uh, blood sport, like that rivalry and make them hate each other, make them like trash talk each other constantly. They don't all have to be best buds. Right. And you know, it's just a little too much. I I just don't think that part was necessary. That didn't ruin the movie for me because I still I still had a good ex- good time with it, but um, that was definitely I think one of my least favorite parts. Well, since we're talking about characters, Adam, or uh, you know, I kind of gave a little overview there. Tell me about some of your favorites. Who are some of the standouts? And um, you know, give a shout out. You know, pour one out for you know somebody on Team One. You know, one of those early deaths. Who who was kind of you know maybe a funny death for you? But yeah, talk through some of the characters. Well, I'll say um, Weasel is a big fan favorite in this household. I didn't really, he made zero impact on me, but our friends Chris and Celia loved him and he reminded them of one of their dogs. So Weasel, when he (laughs) came to life at the end, they were like, yes, Weasel. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That that was a really good little, you know, um, mid credits, like little segment because his, he was the first death of the movie, right? So then whenever he came back, it was a little bit of redemption. I love seeing Boomerang, Captain Boomerang back in the mix. He was really fun. Like I, I I would have liked him around a little bit longer. So I'll pour one out for him in team one. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, I, I had a pretty good time with King Shark, honestly. I loved his just like dopiness. I really liked his design and how he wasn't just like this ripped, you know, humanoid shark, but just kind of like this chubby little dude who's just an idiot. They just played him for such an idiot the whole time. So I I thought that was a pretty, pretty fun take on the character. Um, For me, I'm going to have to say Polka Dot Man is... My favorite, he, I think he stole the movie for me. I love, like, they gave him this sort of tragic backstory, but then reversed it by making it hilarious every time he saw his mother. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, she's all around. Yeah. She's everywhere or whatever. My favorite of saw- that was when they're in the club and he's just dancing and just yes. all surrounded by his mom. <laughs> yes. I love that actor. He's so weird looking. He's kind of got a really interesting face and he usually plays one of these like you know baddies he's in uh i just saw that 
Denis Villeneuve movie Prisoners. He's in that. He's in Blade Runner 2. Like these just weird, quirky parts. And here he got the, you know, time to shine. And then, of course, spoilers. Where he's like, I'm a superhero. Yeah. You fell um, for it. Also, he's he- like... He he had his moment and then he just dies. David Dasmalian, I think, is his name. Okay, and then and then his powers were dope. Like whenever he fired off his polka dots and they just disintegrated like things in holes. It's like that combination of like incredibly stupid um, power idea that was very prevalent in like the '60s and '70s, like DC and Marvel comics of like you know Kite Man and Polka Dot Man and Crazy Quilt and all these stupid names, and then seeing it manifest like in a live action film, you're like, whoa, that power set's actually really strong. Yeah, yeah, very creative and fun way to use it and make it you know matter. Yeah, absolutely. And then I I did like uh, Ratcatcher did nothing for me, but I. Th- I like the sort of lineage of like Ratcatcher 2. It was like a funny sort of like commentary on like comics because, you know, there's been four Robins, five Robins now, depending on, you know, who you categorize. There's, there are multiple Ratcatchers. There's multiple, you know, flashes, all these things. And I love that that's kind of like now a part of the films where like, this is the second one, a part of the lineage of the Ratcatcher family. Yeah, that, that is fun. But she, like I said, didn't really work for me. But I do like that they, no. that was a nice nod. I didn't, like, I, I don't know why Taika Waititi was in there at all, but. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, I, I don't know what he was doing. And then another thing about Ratcatcher, because, again, she did nothing for me at all. And then whenever she called all the rats, like, okay, this happens a lot of times in superhero movies where people don't really know the full weight of their powers. And maybe they're learning their powers. Maybe they're having struggles. And then they have a breakthrough right with their mental maybe they they find a family member something happens and then they learn to unleash their powers where they're now a, an omega level mutant let's say yeah well she single-handedly basically took down Starro with the power of her rats and and I'm just kind of like it's one of those like stupid and I don't like doing this where I'm picking apart like plot elements but I'm like well, if you had that power set all along it wasn't manifested because you had a breakthrough you just always had that power set. Why didn't you use that when you went into Jotunheim? Why didn't you use that literally at any time? Why do you need the rest of the Suicide Squad there? Just use the rats on the island to take it all over and be done with it. And it was kind of like, it didn't have that payoff of like, she needed to be a part of a family to to fully embrace her powers. It wasn't, that wasn't a part of the story. It was just, she never used them. And then now she did. That's such a good call. I didn't even really consider that in the moment, but it is. It's like a big kind of like, you know, this the comic or superhero version of Deus Ex Machina in a way where they're just like, we you know, we need to get out of this. So like now she can do everything. An interesting reworking that I just thought of that might have had a better better payoff is, you know, she has this device or whatever. The device breaks. She's like, I don't have any powers without the device. And then it's like she has a flashback to her dad. And it's like, you know, you can always talk to the rats or something sentimental. And she realizes she doesn't need this stupid wand. See, and and that's exactly what I was explaining is like you have that character moment breakthrough or or like she lost her dad and then now Bloodsport is her new father figure and he says you can do it or and then he pets the rat, you know, because he had the rat phobia. So they kind of had a little relationship there and he kind of finds the rat powers for her, helps her. You know, there's a way to do it, to make it a character moment. And they didn't use that. They should have had us in the writer's room on this. James, come on, man. 
Get us in there. Call up Comic Club. We're happy to do it. Um, okay, what was one of your favorite sequences, segments, action scenes? Just call out whatever you want. I I really liked um, when Harley Quinn escaped and is just like going on a little murder mayhem spree. Really fun. You know, she gets the javelin, which was a funny little callback how that, that came in. And then, you know, it kind of wrapped everything up with a... Uh, a little animated part and just kind of, I think like the silliness with the violence was sort of, that's kind of exactly what I wanted out of this movie, I guess. And I, I was really digging that sequence. And then just the, the little button on that where she finally gets out and then she looks over and it's blood sport, just like yeah. walking like an idiot about to sneak yeah. in. And she's like, Oh, what are these guys doing? That that's set up for their their they're gonna break them out. Peacekeepers about to take a shot at some secretary yeah. and blood sport. They're all dressed like idiots because they're in their civilian attire, but they're kind of wearing half costumes. And the way he shoots his little his little grapple gun up, and he's like climbing up, and it looks just so hard. Like yeah. they're doing this like kind of a horrible job, but you know they're gonna get the job done. That was hilarious. I did love that moment. That was a great moment. I had a lot of fun with with Harley Quinn in general, so I could have picked a few of her sequences. Um, but yeah, what a, what did you like? Well, I, I was going to ask, I, I texted you that question just so you were kind of queued up, and that was my favorite too. They did a little bit of that in Birds of Prey, uh, where they were doing some really interesting background visual moments. It wasn't done in the animated at all like that, but they were doing like these cool smoke bombs and some interesting things. But seeing her like murder, like, okay, so she's murdering the whole prison, just annihilating them and seeing the sort of joy and the almost like snow white, yeah, uh, you know, the birds are chirping and the flowers are blooming as she's doing it. it. It's that perfect like character moment where she's, she's not living in reality. She's a psycho clown. And this is where like she is achieving like her flow state, like, like moment of peace and harmony is when she is just like, you know, like a ballet dancer, just beautifully, you know, this is, you know, this is her masterpiece is just annihilating these people with the javelin, whenever it glows yeah. and stuff. I, it, that moment was really good. It worked for me. It was fun. And I thought one thing that sequence did a good job of, and most of the movie did too, is like, there were no, no throwaway hits. Anytime someone got hit with something, it was like an actual injury and like, blood splatter or a broken bone and so i thought that was just a, a nice fun kind of you know heightened violence i guess i would really yeah i mean realistic. those i don't know what the hell those little urchins were that were latching on to king shark but i did not like seeing those tear up his flesh yeah. because I, I liked king shark too and whenever he had those little like you know circle you know like things on him from those monsters chewing on him ugh. Yeah, that was a little, little creepy. You know, that's the James Gunn of Slither coming at you. That's, that's James Gunn from Troma, okay? That's right, Troma. Hey, tell us what Troma is, Adam, because I was looking that up, and I, wanted, I want you to – why don't you give us an overview? Man, Troma is a production house um, that makes just kind of very genre – B movies, like really, you know, grotesque and juvenile horror movies a lot and um, tons of just like gross out stunts and gags and violence and a lot of self-referential winking at the camera moments. That's where James Gunn got his start. Um, his first, I was reading this earlier and I, it said his first screenplay was a, uh, a trauma version 
of William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, and it's uh, Tromeo and Juliet. And apparently it involves Juliet, like, mutating into a cow with a three-foot penis. So it seems pretty crazy. And um, But then after that, and kind of after he was done, he he did this. I don't think it was with Tromeo, but then Slither was kind of his first big movie. And that was a another uh, horror comedy. So he's well-versed in this this genre of kind of like the the funny along with the actually scary. No, I, I'm I'm so glad you brought that up because I had never heard of Troma, and it's uh, like Adam said, an entertainment studio called Troma Studios, I believe, and they distribute movies, Troma Entertainment. But whenever I was looking up Easter eggs, I did see that the founder of Troma Entertainment, his name is Lloyd Kaufman, and uh, like you said, James Gunn has written on his films before and is part of that studio, and James Gunn puts him in the background as an Easter egg of every one of his films, and in the dance sequence, he's in the background of that bar, and that was one of the Easter eggs I found, and I love that because he's James Gunn is, is doing a throwback to sort of his roots. Lloyd Kaufman is also the director of The Toxic Adventure, which I've never seen, but but it, that's a part of that trauma sort of um, genre, right? Yeah, that's kind of, I think, their big one, you know, among among the fans is, the, yeah, The Toxic Avenger. I feel like there's like eight Toxic Avenger movies or oh, something. Really? It's one of those things that they've just done a million times. And um, it's just like really low budget, uh, really low budget kind of goofy movies. I've never seen any of them. It's just... I'm just aware of them. Gotcha. All right. I have a series of questions here. I'm just going to, this is our rapid fire segment. I'm going to hit them at you, Adam, and you just let me know. They're kind of all over the board. Starro as the villain. What did you think of Starro? Kind of a, you know, another giant CGI creature. Um, Cool design. I love the kind of the idea of Starro, of this thing that can create little, I don't even know, offspring to go and infect other people and make a bigger hive mind. That's a pretty cool concept for a villain and scary. Um, But ultimately pretty forgettable because it's just a huge CGI beast. What'd you think? Yeah, for me, I mean, the CGI beast doesn't bother me because Starro, like, Prime, the big Starro, is not the threat, really. The threat is whenever Starro urchins get on your face and the the zombie, they turn into, you know, it was his zombies, his yeah. minions, his worker bees that are then fighting. And we didn't see any of them really do anything. I did like that this wasn't a end of the world uh, level event. You know, I think they do always do this in every superhero movie. We're like, if we don't stop this, the whole world's going to end. I mean, like... I mean, they, they kind of defeated Sorrow pretty easily, which I think was fine. And that's what makes it not seem so like this big end of the world event. Like we're going to open a portal to Starro's dimension or whatever. It was just, he was just rampaging through the city. But I would have liked to see more of those, uh, you know, this his little minions like fight the team more. And some of the more of those street level fights where the minions are the threat that Starro is controlling, because that's the real problem is that he can take over the whole world through his minions. And that's the real thing. And and even in comics, there's these images like where Superman has a Starro on him. And you could have put the little Starros on members of the Suicide Squad and had them fight each other and stuff like that. And that would have kind of worked for me. Missed opportunity. I totally agree. That would have been nice that would have been a better nod to another movie that James Gunn wrote that I just remembered about. 
he wrote freaking Dawn of the Dead. Did you know that? Did not know that. Yeah. He wrote the hmm. Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead. And uh, Interesting. That's just, I, when I read that, it blew my mind. But it makes sense because that it has a lot of his humor in it and a lot of the kind of hallmarks of like, okay, these are unlikable people that have to work together and we got to make the audience like them too. Yeah. Having said that, though, I do like how stupid Starro is as a concept. It's a big starfish. It's ridiculous, but um, I like that they include that there. All right, Adam, do you want a sequel? Yes, I do. I like I like James Gunn. Um, I have a good time with his stuff, and you know, I feel like it's a little less weight than some of the other superhero movies, and I appreciate that. I would totally watch a sequel, but. I don't know if I really need all of these characters. I love Harley Quinn, so maybe I'd have to watch that sequel without Blaine. Do you have any maybe. interest in a, a sequel to The Suicide Squad? Well, there is a spinoff sequel. I don't even know, know if you know that or not. Adam, tell us about the post credit scene. post credit scene, um, Peacemaker, he's not dead. And, you know, classic, whatever you want to call it, uh, classic dirty government recruiting Amanda Waller shows up and she's like, hey, I like what you're doing. You come to work for me. So he's going to get a spinoff series that's supposed to come out, I think, in 2022 that James Gunn is also going to be directly involved in, directly involved in. I think he's going to be um, creating it, writing it, and directing some, if not all of it. And John Cena is going to be in it. I could kind of take or leave that spinoff. Honestly, Peacemaker was okay i definitely laughed at some of his jokes but john cena doesn't really do it for me i think that he's really limited in what he can provide um what he can do as an actor and i just i kind of i've never seen a performance where i didn't see the the wrestler in john cena like it's he's always just playing a professional wrestler basically Totally. Like, I I think sometimes he works more for me than others. Obviously, he's kind of following The Rock and Dave Bautista's footsteps of these wrestlers who have kind of broken through in comedic roles. And he hasn't quite captured the same sort of um, fervor. You know, he hasn't captured the same sort of like, he's just that sort of interesting and dynamic. And we'll see what happens. I mean, he's going to get a lot more time to, you know, mess around. And I think a lot of his comedy comes from like, you know, his bulkiness. He has such a weird look and his hair is so odd too. I never quite, I never quite know what to think of him. Yeah. Very, very odd kind of. His face kind of looks waxy sometimes, I think. Yeah. Um, okay, another question. What did you think of the soundtrack? That is kind of a hallmark of Guardians of the Galaxy series. What do you think of the soundtrack here? Any notable songs that stood out to you? Big fan of the opening number, you know. Got a little Johnny Cash. Who doesn't like a Johnny Cash to set the tone? Um, and then they did get one really good needle drop that. I know what you're going to say. Oh, what is this? Oh, one of my favorite bands of all time, the Pixies. And uh, one of my favorite songs by the Pixies, Hey. Just such a cool choice. I was jealous that he used that in a movie. I was like, I want to make a movie and use Hey by the Pixies. So that gives Adman's two giant thumbs up. I loved that. Otherwise, little forgettable, I think, on the needle drops. Did you have any other? What about, I mean, I know you love that Pixies needle drop too. 
Yeah, I, I mean, that was going to be the only one because I didn't even know a lot of the other songs. I think in, in Guardians and the other one, I'm pumping my fist. And even if I'm not pumping my fist and saying, oh, I know and love this song, I'm like, you know, shazamming it in my mind because I'm like, I need to know this song so I can go listen to it when I get home because it's so dope. And I didn't have really any of those moments. But when you hear that, hey, come on, I think it came on in the background, like when they're in the bus and it's like playing. I love when they do that in movies where it's like it's coming through the stereo in the film itself. Yeah. And then it kind of goes to the loud, like big speakers where it's just playing as they're like walking up. And it was the moment when they were approaching the Jotunheim kind of like beginning of act three. And oh, man, that hits so hard for me. I love that song so much. Yeah, that one is great. It was a good use of it. Good job, James. And lastly, most important question, how sad were you, Adam, to not see Jared Leto's Joker? Zero percent sad. Um, I was not a fan of Jared Leto's interpretation of, you know, the clown prince of crime. But I do like Jared Leto sometimes. So I'm not a Jared Leto hater. A lot of people can't stand him because he's, you know, a very odd dude in real life brings a lot of that weirdness to his performances, I think. But to me, I appreciate someone who's willing to go out on the weirdest limb and commit to a part because they're, they're making a choice and it doesn't always work. Unfortunately, that's when you, when you take big swings, you have got, you get big misses sometimes, but sometimes you need a really weird guy. And like, I love him in Blade Runner 2049. He's like just the perfect weird casting for that role. So things like that is where I love him. But maybe Joker is where he has a little too much freedom. And I was glad that there was pretty much no reference to him at all. Um, I feel like they were kind of trying to undo that that tone, not even that tone, but that style from the first film that has this like blend of weird new age, like, I don't know, like just like gangster tattoo stuff. I don't know if you noticed this, but they got rid of one of Margot Robbie's face tattoos that said rotten or she had like a neck tattoo or something. They totally got rid of that and they're all better for it. All better for the lack of tattoos. And that's something, something I wanted to mention is what you said. DC's previous strategy was this sort of MCU model of interconnected. Everything is building. This informs this, this sets up this And something I did like about this movie is it stood alone in a really interesting way. I saw this with somebody who is not a fan of superhero stuff. He actually came away liking this um, a lot. And and he was like, do I need to know anything about this? I'm like, "Uh, hopefully not. Hopefully you don't need to see Suicide Squad 1. I I assumed not. And they set up the premise of the Suicide Squad right away. I was reading kind of the Wikipedia and James Gunn was very much like, I don't really even want to reference a lot of the sort of um, birds of prey, um, you know, first Suicide Squad stuff. I just wanted to make it a standalone. And I love that this wasn't, there was no mention of Batman. There was no talk about the Joker. They reference him whenever, you know, Harley is, you know, trying to get over, you know, a previous relationship. But it was just, that's also a part of her character that you can't escape. And I love how standalone this movie was. And I think that could be a really good strategy for DC movies in the future of just like, grab the characters you want, you know, you got to have Harley in this. You know, they took Rick Flagg. They didn't mention Deadshot. You know, you don't even need to mention Deadshot. Who cares? Just don't just don't even mention the guy. Let's just move on and, and make another team. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I feel like this could be an issue 
that is going to become more of a thing with more comic book movies coming out. People have this sense of how much do I need to know to see this? It's the same with comics. It's one of the big limitations or kind of barriers that keeps people from getting into it because it just seems so overwhelming. But if you can get something like this where the base premise is you don't need to know anything about these characters going into it, that is going to just do a lot to bring in new audience members. I have a question for you, Blaine. Let's hear it. Okay, so I'm not sure what the numbers are going to be on this, but I think they're going to do pretty well. It's hard to say because COVID's kind of starting to pop off again. But I feel like the response is going to be good. It looks like critically it's getting pretty good marks so far. It is. Um, When do you think Marvel will make an R-rated superhero movie? Not counting Deadpool because that was kind of Fox. I'm talking MCU Marvel R-rated Interesting question. Oh, man, I don't even... If I were just to say, Adam, first snap reaction is never. I mean, that's a good take. They're owned by Disney. They're owned by Disney. And I think that, you know, Kevin Feige and the Disney and Marvel Studios just... They see what DC is doing and it doesn't phase them. I, I, I think they just do not react. I don't think they give a shit. I think they have a vision for their company and for their thing. And I'm sure at the beginning of the phases, Kevin Feige wrote out like a long, here's my vision for the MCU, where it's going and how it's going to be and how we're going to serve our four quadrants and um, what we're going to like lay out here. And I just can't imagine a world where he's like, we're going to introduce like, you know, more and more intense characters. Having said that, when Deadpool does come into the MCU, you cannot make a PG-13 Deadpool movie. And they're going to have to make a, a Deadpool 3. Now, yeah. Deadpool and X-Men was owned by Fox, which is now owned by Disney. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think the rights to those characters have now gone back to, yeah. to Marvel and Disney. And, and so they were reactive to me because, you know, you had X-Men and then they saw the popularity of... I don't even know whatever one it was. And they're like, they're like, Oh, let's make Logan R rated. Um, or, you know, let's, or maybe they started that. I don't even know. But, um, I, I don't see, I don't see them making an X-Men or Wolverine or any of those, you know, big MC, even like a Punisher. I don't see them doing an R rating. I just can't imagine it under that sort of leadership and under the MCU. But, with the exception of Deadpool. If they're going to do a Deadpool 3 that's going to be folded in somehow, I think you have to do it. And I think you just kind of have to give Ryan Reynolds what he wants because he's a fucking master marketer. He is the king of marketing. In fact, he has a marketing agency that is like incredible. And like, I'm all in for free guy. Like that movie looks hilarious. <laughs> Adam's, Adam's saying, eh. I think it Opposite looks ends again. I, I love Ryan Reynolds. And um, Opposite Ends... Me and Adam saw Deadpool 1 together, and I had the lowest expectations, and I came away just a Deadpool stand now. I, I will see all of those movies. What, what do you think? I think that they are – I think they're going to make an R-rated movie at some point. I don't know how it will work within the MCU, but like you said, they've got Deadpool. You can't do a PG-13 Deadpool, especially when the first two have already been R, and they were massive successes. Yes, huge. I think Deadpool was – before Logan, I think Deadpool I think so. was the first R-rated superhero I, I think movie. So. I think so. And it, that might have paved the way. Or maybe Watchmen even. Because Watchmen was... Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess yeah. that was that was R-rated for sure. But um, yeah, so 
I don't know how it gets folded in. I think James Gunn actually was saying something about this recently, about how he thought Marvel would eventually make an R-rated movie. But I just wonder how it would work if, if at some point we will get some movies that are a little less connected to the, the rest of the MCU. It seems hard to think about now, but I think anything is kind of on the table with them. Or maybe that kind of con I don't know, actually, not saying it out loud. I was going to say maybe it goes to Disney Plus, but no, that seems even less likely to me. No, because, I mean, also you got to think about, they kind of made R-rated TV shows, and it wasn't the MCU, it was Marvel Television Studios, but I remember that first Daredevil season, he was like impaling somebody's face on like a fence post or something. It, it, it yeah. would have been R, and it never felt MCU to me for kind of that very reason, um, but... but Adam, like, if you think there's going to be an R, like, like, how would it work even outside of the Deadpool? Can you can you imagine a character or a sort of universe or a team that would work? Or, or like, go ahead and theorize here. Easy, Guardians of the Galaxy. That could be R-rated very easily. I think you get a couple f bombs in there. You know, you get a little more violence. It's they're. I think that they're closer than we might think to getting R ratings, and they just rein it back a little bit. You maybe have a little more blood spatter. But why? But why? I mean, Rocket is already kind of cursing a little bit. You don't need to have him drop F-bombs. You have Baby Groot. You want to see somebody, you know, you want to see Baby Groot, like, bursting open heads and gouging out eyes? No, but Baby Groot is, like, it's too cutesy for me. That's, it, it, people love that opening sequence of Guardians 2 a lot, that just, like, Baby Groot wank fest, you know? But... I am of the <laughs> opinion that it's just a little too cutesy, a little too merch grabby. I don't think it's merch grabby at all, actually. Not that but that. even Big Groot is cute. Big Groot's like, he's he's more fun, but then there's, they just, I don't know. I just, parts of it don't vibe me. Then they do so many of like, there's so much reliance on the joke of not, we can't understand what he says, but everyone else can. Yes. Oh, yes. don't take that tone with me. Yes, oh, yes. you got some sticks on you to say something like that. Like, yes, how yes. many times can we repeat the same joke? The answer is always. The answer Adam. is <laughs> infinite they, amount of times. They have made Groot talk, speak English in comics. They've like made him be able to converse. And it does not work for me. I just give him the I am Groot every time. It, it's, it always works. Um I'm trying to think who else, Adam, because I'm trying to think of what are the uh, there used to be this series that was Marvel Knights and it was more uh, mature rated Daredevil, yeah. obviously Punisher, Elektra series. You know, a lot of these they've adapted, like I said, the television shows or old stuff that didn't necessarily work. But you have bad, baddies like Bullseye and again, Punisher and Kingpin and stuff like this. And these are legit like bad guys who like murder people and i think you could you could make that but i just don't think marvel would ever want the kids missing out and i think deadpool is that fine line where it still looks like a marvel and x-men movie with their costumes and the colors and everything like that and yes it is very like i mean ryan reynolds is making some pretty like lewd and crude jokes that you wouldn't want your kid to necessarily hear but i remember my cousins thinking deadpool like i mean they were like you know, middle school and stuff like that. And their dad, like, let them go see it. And it's kind of like one of those, 
you know, you love superhero movies, here's kind of your first, first exposure into R. It's kind of like that ease into R. And the violence is still so comical in that that it's not like Logan violence where it's just like, oh, God, he just ripped that guy's face in half. It's a good point. It's a good point. And, you know, most of that stuff, I'm, I agree with you. I don't want to see an R-rated Spider-Man. I don't need that. Um, but I don't know. I feel like uh, if people are making R-rated movies, Disney has never been one to say, you guys keep all the money. They want yeah. a piece of that pie, baby. Yeah, but I, yes, yeah. But they just stay, that, that's what I think makes Disney and Marvel is they have their lane. They are not reactive. They have a vision where you can see DC just pivoting every five years. We're like, that didn't work. Let's try this. That didn't work. How about this? Let's hire the, you know, the director from Guardians. Um, anyway, let's bring this ship down, Adam. This is beyond the panels where we talk about the films and TV that inspired it. We just got a trailer for Why the Last Man, and me and Adam are trying to figure out how the hell are we going to talk about that show. A Adam, we love Brian K. Vaughn over here. Love him. Maybe my favorite comic writer uh, ever. Probably, certainly my favorite comic writer working in the game today. And Why the Last Man holds a lot of uh, sentimental value for me as well, because that, to me, that's the first comic I really remember getting into, especially as it was coming out. And it kind of just showed me that comics could be a lot more than the the lovely cape and cows that I had known. And um, yeah, so I don't know what we should do. If you guys out there in comic club world have any suggestions on how you think we should cover it, hit us up. Yeah, it's a long series. We're a little overwhelmed because there's so many issues there so we'll see what happens but now that movies you know covid's spiking back up but now that movies and tvs are release releasing again i mean we're getting a lot of superhero and comic content coming out over the next you know end of this year and into next year so if you listen to us on spotify i created a playlist for beyond the panels if you're not one who just reads comic books but wants to follow along with the movies Follow that playlist. Listen to some of our previous ones. We've done WandaVision. We've done Loki. Adam, we've done Snyder Cut. Yep, did Snyder Cut. We're doing all the MCU. We're trying to hit the DCU when we can. You know, we're just going to... We got Marvel What Ifs kind of on the horizon. That should be fun. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe we'll check out MODOK. Who, who knows, man? Who knows? But that's going to be it for this special beyond the panels episode you can find us online at comic club podcast i am blaine mcgaff on twitter i'm danger adam on instagram tell a friend leave a review and pick up this month's comic we'll see you next time and that's going to be it for this month comic club out Comic Club is brought to you from Upper Esh Media. This episode was edited by Adam J. Cook. Our intro and outro music is by Tiger Cup. Katie Livingston at Living Kate designed our logo. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on social at Comic Club Podcast, and join our Facebook group to continue the conversation online. Remember, everyone, read more comics. Comic Club.